Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 10 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're diving into the world of comic books today and looking at DC's Batman Year One on your Damn It Jim podcast. Today I'm joined by Odd Wonk Joshua Unruh, who is the very epitome of making the thing. Joshua started his own imprint, Pulp Diction Press, and now writes stories for a living. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, a freelance writer, an author. I'm also incidentally like a teacher and a parent and a husband and big time pop culture aficionado. I've really been enjoying you, Johnny Come lately to, uh, to all of these pop culture things. Uh, it's been a there good There will time. be many more. Oh, yeah. No, that's why I reached out and was like, so are you into superheroes at all? <laughs> so you are absolutely talking to a person who, if it were possible to have PhDs in Batmanology and Batmanography, I would be that guy. I learned to read on superhero comics. And so, like, literally my entire life, that is what I have been uh, reading. And really, the more I talk about uh, how old Batman Year One is, it just kind of gets depressing how long I've been reading superhero comics. But anyway, so not only do I read a lot of superhero stuff, but I write it. I think about it a lot. I'm uh, going to plug myself just a bit right now. So I'm working on um, a serialized fiction project with another author, Daniel Swenson. He's incredibly talented. He wrote a fantasy novel that I don't hate, which is a big deal female protagonist, things actually happen. It's it's amazing. And so we're working on kind of a mystery man project, but inspired by like pulp magazines, but a little more diverse. Actual women and people of color are in it. You know, not really a thing that happened back in the day. Yeah, that's uh, impressive. So, and Batman actually shares a lot of DNA with the pulp mystery man. Uh, so if I sound like I know what I'm talking about here and you want to read something I wrote, you can... Buy the ebook at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and stuff like that, uh, and iBooks as Masks and Mysteries. But if you want to support me a little deeper after that, you can find me at patreon.com slash pulp diction press. I am now done pimping my stuff, and we can just talk about Batman. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history and production, although I guess production is probably the wrong word for a comic book series. But Batman Year One was written by Frank Miller with art by, I'm going to massacre this name, David Mazzuccelli? That's how I've said it. All right. David Mazzuccelli. I've never heard it spoken, so we'll go with that. (laughs) Um, It was released throughout 1987 as issues 404 to 407 of the main Batman title line. Since release, Year One is considered one of the most important Batman stories told, generally only second to The Dark Knight Returns, which was also written by Frank Miller and released the year before. The Dark Knight Returns helped forge a modern, grittier Batman to remove the memory of the camp from the 60s iterations of the character. Year One showed the origin of that version and cemented the situation of Gotham as a seedy city with a corrupt police that was calling out for Batman and his allies. I'm going to jump in with a little historical perspective here. So yes and no to most of that. Uh, You're not wrong, but I'm going to nuance it up. Interestingly enough, in 1985, DC Comics decided that its multiverse, like its whole line of comics, had grown too hard for people to understand easily. And so they collapsed these many Earths, these multiple timelines and such, into one Earth. 
in this massive 12-part maxi-series that starred literally everyone they'd ever published and a few people that they had never published before then, that they had like acquired the rights to but hadn't used yet. And it's called Crisis on Infinite Earth. So if I ever say pre-crisis or post-crisis, that's the thing I'm talking about. Okay. But part of this is that they did two farewell stories for their two biggest characters, Superman and Batman. And the Superman one is uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and it's the saddest I, it's super sad, for real. And their farewell no spoilers. to spoilers. Well, it it's pretty yeah, wow. It's just really melancholy, I guess. I don't I don't know. It's they're saying goodbye to at that point something like fifty years of comic book publishing history. So it it's rough. Contrast that with uh The Dark Knight Returns, which is not actually it didn't really have um anything to do with this kind of grittying things up in a way. It did incidentally, I guess I would say, because Frank Miller thinks that Batman 66, the 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 TV show, is dumb and so was using Dark Knight Returns to say goodbye to that whole nonsense. You know, so it and it did wind up grittying things up a little bit, but incidentally to its job. I, I don't know. Maybe nobody else thinks that's interesting. I find it super fascinating, the timing of those two books. Okay. Batman Year One was turned into an animated film in 2011. And the interesting thing about that is that Bruce Wayne was played by Ben McKenzie, who now plays James Gordon in the TV series Gotham. I like kind of quirky little things like that. I like intersection of, I want to say fandoms, but it's not really fandoms when they're both kind of the same universe but, but you oh, know what i mean right we do we do we need a new word for that um it's kind of like how the flash from the 90s tv show is the dad of the flash on the current tv show right or how which i just learned this so i'm sure you saw that that richard hatch passed away this week yes and i knew him i've only seen the 2004 reboot of battlestar galactica so i knew him as tom zarek right i did not know until i was reading the articles about his passing that he was the original apollo Yes. I had no idea. And so that sort of thing, I think, is just amazing. Whenever you get somebody who just loves the universe so much that they do lots of things within it, it's oh, great. Oh, absolutely. The uh, the Batman from the 66 show played, this is, this is complicated, a sort of mentor inspiration character for Batman in the animated series from the 90s. Like those things just, yeah, when they can pepper those through, when a property goes on long enough for that, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, this book's most famous adaptation is the Christopher Nolan movies, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. While the movies were not full of adaptations, many characters and concepts about the origin and development of Batman seen in year one were incorporated. And the interesting thing about that is while I have seen Batman Begins, I have not seen The Dark Knight. It is on my list. Okay. So there will be a separate show about that in the future. Don't that's worry. why, for anyone who is listening to the show and knows me, that's why I am not going off on a Chris Nolan tear right now. Because they're <laughs> going to do another show, and I'm not going to be invited. And that's better for everybody. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> after, after you have your show, just uh, we'll talk about it on Twitter. That'll be, the, that'll be the way to handle that. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> The year one craze did catch on a bit, especially for Bat books. DC released Batman year two later in 1987. However, future crossover events largely removed those events from the continuity, partly because they tell me year two is terrible. Year is that two right? Is terrible. It's, it's terrible. 
I, I did a little bit of reading on this, and it just sounds kind of insane. Yeah. I don't understand why they did it. Like, none of it makes it... Yeah. The only thing it's notable for is a a relatively, you know, temp, a teapot... What am I saying? Tempest in a teapot celebrity of comic book drawing drew it. Todd McFarlane drew it. It is otherwise completely forgettable except for how bonkers it is. Okay. There were some other year one titles. You had a Catwoman year one that tried to fix some of the problems from Batman year one. We'll talk about those as we get into it. There was a Robin year one. And then there were some other books that sort of followed in that year one kind of continuity area. Uh, The Long Halloween is one of those. The Man Who Laughs is one of those. For my money, I am going to suggest if anybody reads year one and wants to go into that kind of young, just starting out Batman area, Batman and the Monster Men and Batman and the Mad Monk, both written and drawn by Matt Wagner. Uh, They take actual stories from 1939 Batman comics and retell them. I mean, these stories were maybe eight to ten pages long before, and these blow them out into, you know, six issue uh, stories that actually, you know, have character development and stuff like that. So, and I really... When did this come out? 2006, 2007. Okay. I highly recommend them. They do a great job. We'll we'll get to the end of Batman Year One, but they kind of dangle that whole, well, I guess organized crime is done. Let's talk about supervillains thing. And both Mad Monk and Monster Men really run with that, uh, oh, the war on crime's over and now it's time for mad scientists and stuff. It's I really, really like them. They're excellent. Okay. You want to talk about Frank Miller? You want me to talk about Frank Miller? <laughs> Why don't you talk about Frank Miller? Because you're way more familiar with him than I am. <laughs> yes. For for a long time, I was a Frank Miller fan. So Frank Miller wrote Batman Year One. He also wrote the Sin City series, which is sort of a series of series, uh, all through the 90s and some of the 2000s. He wrote a huge chunk of Marvel's Daredevil series in the early 80s. He has written... Uh, RoboCop 2, I think, is his movie. Stuff that he did, that he drew with Chris Claremont, got adapted into The Wolverine. 300 was adapted almost panel for panel into the into the movie of the same name. So, yeah, so that's Frank Miller. We're going to talk more about Frank Miller when uh, a little later, but I was, for a long time, a big fan of his. Fair enough. So, Obviously, the big question for me to answer is why I've never read comics, or specifically why I've never read this one. Such a big sigh, Mandy. Such a just, whoa, I guess I better explain this thing. (laughs) Yeah. I, honestly, I was just never exposed to comics as a kid. It wasn't something anybody in my family did. I grew up in a very conservative family where, in our small town, people went to church and they watched NASCAR. And so comic books weren't really something that I even knew about, really, except for a few little boys might have had them in school. Uh And then as I got older, I figured out I was way nerdier than I ever thought I was. (laughs) I just really got overwhelmed because there's so much out there. But I have to tell you, with the MCU becoming so popular, Mm -hmm. it's really got me wanting to go back and read a lot of origin stories. Just because I adore the MCU and all of the movies, but there's just so much history that you really need to kind of pick up on the nuances that they're showing you if you really want to get the full picture. You 
you have two problems there, actually. And I'm going to, I don't know how I started reading comics. That's real talk. Like my, I didn't have anybody around me. And like I said, I was five or six years old when I started reading comics. Uh, there were spinner racks in grocery stores is literally the only thing I can think of. Those don't exist anymore, you know. Right. Um, but as far as like trying to get into it, you're not kidding. Uh, so after Winter Soldier came out, the MCU Winter Soldier, um, people would be like, so this is based on comics. And I would say yes. And they would say which ones. And I would refer them to that run by Ed Brubaker. And it's amazing. Uh, Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting did that book for 10 years. And the Winter Soldier stuff is kind of in the the early third or so of it. But here's the thing. When I would tell people to read it, there were three different volume ones from different points in that collection that just said Captain America volume one and had Ed Brubaker's name on it. And I couldn't tell without looking through them where, which one to give them. So it's an overwhelming proposition, even before you get into things like learning how to read comics, because there is kind of a way that pages are put together and stuff like that. So Yeah, well, I can say even reading this one, I I struggled with a few of the pages in this one trying to figure out, you know, because some of most of the panels have very clearly defined boxes around them. Some Mm -hmm. of them did not. Mm -hmm. And so it was, wait, does this go, do I go all the way down the page and then go back up to the top or do I read it across? I, I struggled with that. And eventually I figured it out because it just, you know, eventually you figure out what they're saying or what they're doing and what actually makes sense. Yeah. But you ha- when you have to put that much work into figuring out what they're trying to show you, especially when you're reading it on a computer screen where you have to scroll, it can oh, be difficult. That's, that's changed everything. Absolutely. And, and really, the best pages kind of tell you how to read them. But there's still, you know, some quirks of the of the storytelling. I like to use the example of uh, if you had never seen a cartoon before and then somebody got conked on the head and all of a sudden birds were flying around their head. You would be like, what nonsense, right? I mean, there's just clues, right, tips, right. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so having never read any superhero comics, but having watched at least some of the MCU stuff, Mandy, what were your expectations for Batman Year One? I don't know that I actually had expectations going in, just because I really know very little about Batman as a character. I think the only, I know I mentioned I had seen Batman Begins. I don't remember anything about it other than it had Christian Bale in it. That's it. I have no idea what the plot of that movie was about. And I was obsessed with Batman Returns when I was a kid, but that was because it had Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman and I loved her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And apart from her, I don't really remember anything of that movie either. So Batman himself is really kind of an enigma to me. Other than, you know, I see the memes on, you know, Facebook and all that stuff. And and so I kind of get some of the humor and stuff. But as far as an origin story for Batman went, I had no expectations because I didn't know what the tone was going to be. I had Mm -hmm. no idea what the actual plot was going to be. And so I just went into it thinking, I've always wanted to read comics. I'm reading a comic and I really hope that I enjoy it. Okay, great. Uh, am I skipping? Okay, I am skipping ahead. So we'll 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 put That's a pin okay. in, we'll put a pin in the enjoying it. Now, you, did you have any experience with Frank Miller or any of his adaptations, the stuff adapted from his work before this? Not that I was aware of. So, had you seen Three Hundred or RoboCop Two? <laughs> I've not seen Three Hundred. I've not seen 
Sin City. Pretty sure I haven't seen the 2003 Daredevil movie or the Wolverine. RoboCop 2 I probably did see. I mean, that would have been way back in the early 90s, right? Uh, that would be more like late 80s. Late 80s, yeah. yeah. So I, pro- I probably saw it kind of in passing. Like maybe one of those things where I was playing in the living room while my parents were watching it kind of movie. So I think it's safe to say I really have no experience with Frank Miller. <laughs> okay. All right. Here is the point. Well, uh, okay. I- I'm going to jump around a little bit. Did you enjoy Batman Year One? I did. You did? Excellent. I did. Absolutely. I read it Batman. twice. Oh, very good. Well, I know that at one point you were you were like, this is taking me a long time to get to. And I was like, oh, God, good way or bad way. Uh, because it's really kind of dense. Like, I forget that it originally was only four issues, like four monthly right. well, books. They're long issues, though. And there's a lot of story. Yes, in, there's just a lot there. going on. Yeah. Does this make you want to read other things by Frank Miller? Sure. Okay. I'm going to caution you. <laughs> because you may have noted that i said i used to be a fan of frank miller um right he has just become just a dotty old racist like he's uh yeah it's complicated he uh, there are shades of the problems that he has with women and minorities in batman year one oh well i i did notice uh (laughs) there was there was one line in particular that really stood out to me um as far as race goes in Batman Year One, oh, I, yeah. I don't know that I picked up the women stuff as much, just because I thought, uh, what's her name? Damn it, Jim, woman, Detective Sarah. SN, Sarah, yes. right? I thought she was portrayed fairly well. Yeah, no, um, especially for the time. But yeah. um, you know, I guess Barbara Gordon was not particularly portrayed well, but you know, Selena was fine. Selena's fine, except she was a hooker. I mean, I'm going to point out to you that Catwoman in her long and illustrious history had never been a prostitute before Frank Miller got a hold of her. Oh, so, and okay. And if you read any more Frank Miller stuff, you'll just kind of see that roll forward through stuff. Um, got it. He's got, yeah, he's got some problems with, uh, with women and minorities. And, uh, and to be honest, he made it easy because he kind of writes hacktastic crap now. So you can just... You know, you're you're good. You're probably good. You could read Dark Knight <laughs> Returns if you wanted to, but we should talk about it. And otherwise, okay. <laughs> otherwise, you're pro. I mean, there are still Sin City books that I reread that still have the problems in them, but I think own the problems a little better than a Batman book can, if that makes sense. But yeah, so word of caution on on Frank Miller. Word of caution, especially. There's a book called All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. Stay away from it. It's, <laughs> it's hot garbage. Okay. So, I, yeah. won't, I probably won't read anything that somebody doesn't specifically recommend to me. So if he's really that problematic, I can't imagine anybody would actually recommend it anyway. I would throw some Sin City at you for very different reasons than, than I gave Batman Year One to you. But okay. but even then, honestly, you could probably just watch the movie and you'd be fine. They are they are extremely faithful to the to the comics. So okay, well, I am willing to bet that a significant portion of the folks who are listening to the show have not read this book. So let's go through the story and actually tell folks what happened in these four issues. Absolutely. So in issue one, we begin on January fourth with a study of contrast. 
James Gordon is riding the train to Gotham City, wishing he could have flown in to avoid the ugliness of the city. Bruce Wayne flies into the city, wishing he had taken the train to feel the grittiness of reality. Gordon is afraid his wife is pregnant and laments that Gotham is no place to raise a family. He meets his new partner, Lieutenant Flass, and learns pretty quickly that the cops in this town are corrupt when Flass attacks some kids for no reason other than he could. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne arrives and is met by the press who hope to get answers about rumors of his love life and future plans in the city. At the Wayne Manor, Alfred welcomes him back home. A month later, we learn that Gordon does indeed have a baby on the way, while Flass warns Gordon off of coming down too hard on other officers. Bruce destroys bricks and trees as he trains, but says he isn't yet ready and must be patient. Flass complains to his boss that Gordon isn't fitting in because he wouldn't take a bribe. The commissioner warns Flass not to take care of it until he's out of town, so he can't be implicated. Later, Gordon leaves for the night shift when he's attacked by Flass's men. They underestimate Gordon, who gets the upper hand. He then tracks down Flass and repays him in kind. And I just, you know, I want to talk about that scene. Yes, let's talk about that scene and Gordon. Yes, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, throughout the whole book, they, up to this point, they've kind of been setting Gordon up as this kind of tough tough as nails character Mm -hmm. in very, very subtle ways. But to actually see him take on these four men who have jumped him and then turn around and go back to Flass and do the same thing. I was like cheering for him, but at the same time, I was like, he's kind of scary. That is one of the excellent additions that Batman Year One kind of brings. They really, it really fleshes out Gordon. In the, he was commissioner from minute one before this, you know, like you only ever knew him as commissioner. And so they're, if they, but if they're going to grit up Gotham City and really turn it into this noir hellscape, we need to, we need to have a conversation about the kind of guy that can, clean that up from the inside, right? Right. And so, yeah, they introduce some very vague military background, which I'm assuming involved Vietnam, you know, because it was the mid 80s and that would have been about the right, you know, the right time frame, give or take. They they never really, as far as I know, that never really got fleshed out. They never even really flesh out why he had to leave Chicago. I assumed, based on information that we get a little bit later that he left because he turned in another cop who either they couldn't prove that the other cop had done something wrong or the other cop hadn't done anything wrong. And so he was kind of disgraced. Maybe I read too much into that. No, that's good. I, for a long time, I I thought that maybe he had taken the one bribe that he was ever going to take in his life and it completely backfired on him. But I think, I think based on multiple rereadings, I think you're closer to it, You you know. Yeah, the scene where Flash stops the car and jumps out to beat up the kids in the alley, you know, Gordon oh, is yeah. just watching and he he very specifically says, I will never take down another cop without proof or uh-huh. evidence or something like that. Yeah, and you so better know what's going on before you take a cop down right. in public. And he yeah. says he's going to keep it stored in his memory for future reference. And you get that very close-up frame of his face with his like little squinty eyes. And so that that point, that's when I first started realizing, you know, Gordon is not just this father-to-be man who loves his wife. He's got a little bit of a dark side to him. De- yeah. I mean, it's definitely a dark side that he has harnessed for being an amazing cop, you know. But Gotham is a hellhole, and who's the guy that's going to not just survive that, but survive it clean? Jim Gordon. 
you know, and I really, the best part, or I don't know about best part, but his last line of that whole scene kind of ties the bow on it where he says, uh, thanks Flass for showing me what it takes to be a cop in Gotham city. This is after he has, you know, beaten him three quarters to death and left him handcuffed and naked in the woods. Right. To, you know, he'll, uh, he'll stay away from Barbara, you know? It, yeah. Gordon, Gordon gets a lot of excellent character work in Batman year one. Agreed. Probably more than Bruce gets, honestly, but we kind of know his deal because his name's on the cover. So. Right. <laughs> I, the, okay, so the first time I, I opened page one and started reading, it took me a little while to figure out that we started with James Gordon and not uh-huh. Bruce Wayne. Like, it, I, I think I had to reread that page a couple times because at first I was like, okay, you know, it's just narrative. We're just getting the words. We're not really seeing a character yet. And then I got to the panel that showed his face. And I, my first thought was, that's not what Bruce Wayne looks like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. And so I kept reading. And then we got to the plane with the um, the cursive writing, which, by the way, I can't stand that cursive writing. Oh. But then I was like, yeah. okay, that's definitely Bruce Wayne. And so then I went back and reread it, understanding what I was reading and it, it helped a lot. You get, so as far as year one's concerned, Bruce Wayne returns to Gotham knowing what he's coming back to, but not sure how he's going to deal with it. Like that's his big question. So for you to get introduced to this new Gotham, if you were a person who'd been reading Batman stuff until, uh, you know, until crisis, or if you were brand new, Jim's really the better guy to introduce the city to you because he's taking it in fresh. Bruce knew right. exactly what he was coming home to. So yeah, that's uh excellent. I uh, I really yeah, it's a good open to to get their sort of competing viewpoints on things. Okay, let's finish out Bruce's story in issue 1. Bruce nails down an alibi before donning a disguise to do recon in the neighborhood where his parents were killed. Walking down the street, he's approached by a young prostitute. He turns her down, but her handler starts a fight. Bruce defends himself, so the young girl, Holly, attacks while the rest of the girls on the corner join in. Here we meet Selena, who rushes to protect Holly and teach Bruce a lesson. Cops arrive and shoot Bruce, who ends up losing consciousness. The cops debate taking him to the hospital or letting him die, but Bruce wakes up and finds a burst of strength allowing him to escape. Though he's severely injured, Bruce makes a plan to use the cave under the manor, and when a bat crashes through the window startling him, he decides to become a bat. This is kind of an adaptation of a much simpler uh, few-page story that told the origin of Batman. Batman actually showed up in 1939 with no origin, and you did not find out he was Bruce Wayne until the end of the story. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting approach. Like, especially I have origin fatigue like you would not believe at this point. And, and my own work skip, tends to skip origins as often as possible. But, uh, but later you got kind of a, a backgrounder and he's, but this is also like 1940. So he's in a smoking jacket sitting in his father's study saying how criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. I must make them fear me. How will I do it? And then the the bat bursts in. Mm. Um, So I really like this whole, he's nearly bleeding to death. And I really like a lot of the, like the purple prose that's going on here where he says, uh, I'd rather die than wait another hour. 
Like, he could call Alfred and be fine, but I'd rather die than wait another hour. And he's talking to his dad the whole time, and then the bat comes in, lands on his dad's bust, and he's like, yes, father, I'll become a bat. It's, yeah, it, those are lines from 1940 getting repurposed and recontextualized for, you know, for this retelling. So, pretty, pretty right. cool stuff. I'm not sure that it was done very well, because... I was a little bit confused by what happened. I had to reread the page a couple of times. And then I only really understood because I could supplement it with the knowledge that I came into the story with. Okay. I mean, I know that Bruce Wayne becomes Batman because he's afraid of bats. And that's actually added later also. Like, I mean, he does have that kind of one-off line of it terrified me as a boy, but that's it. Like, we don't, you know... So you're not, in this, you're not wrong. You're not wrong as well. <laughs> yeah, well, because in this particular scene, I mean, he's just sitting there bleeding to death, pondering, do I call Alfred to come save my life? And then a random bat crashes through the window and suddenly he's going to be a bat. You know, that doesn't really make sense. It makes more sense if you take the extra textual evidence of the prior knowledge that I had. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I did read, I read that page a couple of times trying to really understand the the progress of events that led to he decides to become a bat. You definitely, and I never really got there. Yeah, you definitely have to bring extra, uh, like extra textual things to there to make that completely work. Now that said, I will say again, they he did this in four issues, and I feel like Miller did an amazing job of just cramming so much stuff into this into these four issues. And every, but every now and then you can really see the edges where he was like, eh, close enough. I mean, you know, every artist has hit that point. And, <laughs> and I feel right. like the, okay, I'm going to have the bat burst in now because I'm tired of thinking about how to lay out this page, you know. Okay. I, and I can forgive him because it isn't the clearest thing, but you also picked up a book called Batman. So heads up. <laughs> gonna wind up Fair in enough. A, you know, he's going to wind up in Dracula drag at some point, you know. Right. So... Okay, let's move on with issue two. Issue two picks up in April, and Gordon is responding to a hostage situation. He learns that a man named Brandon is on his way to defuse the situation, but Gordon knows that will end in a bloodbath. He gets there first and takes the hostel down without casualties. Brandon complains to the commissioner that Gordon humiliated him, and we are reminded that the department wants Gordon gone. Unfortunately, the press likes him, so they can't really do anything about it. Hero cop James Gordon splashed across the front page. I like it. Uh I like it a lot. Uh, So Gordon is having a much-needed night in with his wife, but it's interrupted when he gets a call about a large bat. Batman has interrupted three would-be burglars as they're hauling their loot out to the fire escape. One of them gets so spooked that he falls over the balcony railing, and Batman catches him so he doesn't fall 20 stories to his death. After all, Batman's not a killer. The kid's stupid accomplices attack Batman, who must stop them without dropping the kid hanging over the railing. He succeeds, but only just barely. This scene frustrated me so badly, because I find it hard to believe that anybody would be that stupid. But then I remember we live in America, and of course people are that stupid. Well, you're talking about people who are, they're criminals, right? And A thing that my wife and I often say, my wife is an attorney and I am a crime writer, so we have had these conversations. And the thing that we say a lot of times is, jail is for stupid people. Smart people do not actually go to jail most of the time, you know? Um, Also, let's think, you're sneaking around, you're a little adrenalized, 
and then a monster drops down on you. <laughs> I mean, I can understand being terrified, but what did they think was going to happen to their friend if they managed to take down Batman? I feel like you are giving them more altruistic feelings about their crew than is maybe necessarily textual, you know? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Maybe I'm just kinder than they are. The one the one thing that I will say that I really like about this scene is that you get you get a pre-Batman scene of Bruce Wayne not being sure what to do and really screwing it up badly because he gets hurt, right? Right. But then once he figures out the method, once he figures out the Batman persona, it becomes a, well, how do I do this just right? And he's actually too scary the first time, you know? Right. And and then after that, though, all you see is 100% competent Batman, which I feel is really important because Batman's superpower is competence, you know? Right. So I like, again, he had so, Miller had so few pages to work with that some of these beats just feel absolutely masterful to me. I feel like, and maybe I should wait until after the beat by beat to bring this up, but I cannot help but draw a comparison between the Batman in year one and Oliver Queen on Arrow. Oh, that's not an accident. Uh, Okay. TV Arrow is basically low rent Batman. Right. I mean, and yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I was reading this story and I was like, are Bruce Wayne and Oliver Queen the same person? Okay. So, <laughs> brief side note. Yes. Green Arrow has been a Batman ripoff since day one. It's blatant and it's obvious. He has an Arrow cave. He has an Arrowmobile. He has a kid sidekick. All of these things he has because Batman had them first. He is 100% a Batman knockoff. And one of the things that endeared the first couple of seasons to Arrow to me was that they owned that and just, you know, like, yep, we know, and just kept going. You know, like, here's a growly voice, and here's here's a scowl, and here's, you know. um, But they they used Green Arrow because Batman's too big for TV at this point, and also because family drama, which Bruce Wayne doesn't have. Right, because until Bruce he starts, no until he starts adopting children, you know, and apparently getting engaged in year two. Did I did I read that? Was that in year two? Oh, okay. In nineteen thirty nine, Bruce Wayne had a fiance that he just lied to constantly about being Batman, and so yeah, they kind of roll that forward a little bit into year two, and also the uh, the ones I like better, the Mad Monk and. And the Monster Men. But but Julie gets a much fairer shake in in the Matt Wagner books. So, yeah. But yes, he had a fiancé, briefly. Okay. I don't know what else to say about that. It's a terrible idea. It just makes, <laughs> it just makes Bruce Wayne a bad person. Like, it's not good, you know. Yeah, I can see that. Um, because you want to root for him. You want to cheer for him because he's trying to save the city. But... He can't be that good guy, that hero, if he's constantly lying all the time. I mean, there's a line there that we we want to be careful about because secret identities are a thing. Like, I have to, I really have to nuance Superman for a similar reason. Um, to be fair, though, in Superman's case, you don't want intergalactic despots knowing that your family lives in Kansas. So, you know, maybe right, it's a- but <laughs> even in the and okay, really, my only exposure to Superman is. The Adventures of Lois and Lane, <laughs> or or Batman, whatever oh, you know. Oh, I'm talking the about. Lois the TV and Clark? Show. Yes, that one. Uh, oh the Dean Cain one. 
that that's my exposure to Superman, I think. And I, I think I did watch before Man of Steel. Was it Superman Returns? The one that had Brandon Roosh in it? Oh, it's the worst. Well, I, I would I have think said I it was the worst. That one. It was the worst until Man of Steel happened, which was the worst <laughs> until Batman versus Superman happened. But So I feel like though, even with Superman, eventually he does tell the people he's closest to, right? Well, I mean, he marries Lois, so yeah. Right. And so that I mean, that's where that line gets drawn for me. Eventually, because he loves her and he doesn't want to lie to her, he tells her the truth. Right. Oliver Queen on Arrow, he brings his closest friends in on his secret identity because one, he knows he can't do it alone, and two, he doesn't want to lie to these people. That's the line that you don't want Batman to cross. You don't well, want him to just keep lying and lying and lying to this woman that he's going to marry. Right. Yes. I, I mean, I feel like fl- the Flash TV show jumps the gun and he has them like people are giving Barry a hard time for not telling girls on the third date that he's Flash. <laughs> and that seems a little early. But yeah, there's a point where you're like, uh, maybe, maybe this person I want to spend the rest of my life with, I should stop lying and tell them about this whole other much larger part of my life. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So that's why I say uh, the Mad Monk and Monster Man give Julie a little bit better shake. Not not the best shake, but a better shake. <laughs> okay. Moving forward. Uh, Lieutenant Gordon leads a task force at the PD investigating a vigilante that calls himself Batman. Flass insists he's not human. Flass witnessed Batman in action when he stopped a cocaine delivery that Flass was bribed to allow. And he looks a little worse for the wear after the encounter. I really like that scene, too. Like, Flash's voiceover of the lie of what was going on while we're yeah. seeing the actual thing. I really, I like that a lot. I liked it a lot, too. But I had to go back and check the dates on these sections several times just because the last time we saw Flash. Gordon had just beat the holy hell out of him. Oh, and now we're true. seeing him again and he's got a cast on and, and I'm like, did Gordon hurt him that badly that he's still this injured? And it took me that's... a few minutes to figure out that Batman did that to him. No, that's legit. That's a good point. That's a good point. I had I never had that problem, but I mean I can totally see how you would get there. So yeah. I think sometimes I look at things too closely. When I, especially when I'm doing it for this, you know, where I know we're going to talk about it. And so I need to have things to talk about. And so uh-huh. I'm like looking at every panel, at every word, trying to figure out how everything fits together. And so sometimes I may be a little nitpickier than I need to be. No, I think you're you're definitely on to something because without going too deep into the animated movie, one of the things that works, I feel, amazingly well in the comic book are these hard cuts that sometimes jump four or five or six weeks at a time. And they work less well in the movie because we're just not used to movies working that way. Like, right? Do it, and it it very closely follows the comic book. So I think you're on to something. I mean, I mean, you're new to comics, so that might be part. But also, again, he only had so many pages. That's that's very interesting. I can see where that would undermine your enjoyment of this otherwise fantastic scene of Flass sucking. No, no, it was a great scene. And once I understood that Batman did that to him and I went back and reread it, I was like, this is fantastic. I mean, him insisting that Batman's not human, like he's sitting there in front of a room full of his fellow corrupt cops, these Uh tough guys. And instead of being worried that they're going to laugh at him, he's up there saying, no, this guy's not human. 
you know, and I loved it. I mean, and I thought it was humiliating for him, but he didn't seem to think so. And still, oh no, I mean, I think he did. Like, Mazzucchelli gets a little look in his face where he's like, and, and Gordon says that one thing where he, uh, where Flass lies about the fact that he's there arresting people instead of taking a bribe and then pauses to look around the room to see if anybody's going to argue. I mean, right. it's, yeah, it's not a, it's not a good look for Flass. Anyway, I, yeah. <laughs> so Batman's next stop is the mayor's house during a little dinner party where the commissioner is present. Gordon calls because the commissioner is ignoring his request for extra personnel to track down the vigilante. And just a side note there, why would Gordon call the mayor's house to talk to the commissioner during a dinner party? I think that's actually the commissioner's house. I think that it's the commissioner's house and Batman was there because he was having that dinner party with it, with I the would, mayor and See, Falcone I went back and, and reread and the the Batman's voiceover is literally he says next up the mayor's house. Huh. That's okay, I don't know. I went back and I was like maybe did I read that wrong? Maybe this is the commissioner's house, but the the little voiceover thing specifically did say the mayor's house and so that scene was a little confusing to me unless it was just Gordon is trying to be absolutely persistent. And so he just is going to keep calling and calling no matter where he is. So I think I can kind of give it like a mid eighties forgiveness thing where you don't have cell phones or pagers or anything. So if you are an important city official, you might need to be prepared to be called places that you wouldn't normally, you know, get like you call the commissioner's house and they're like, he's at the mayor's. Well, I'll call the mayor's and you're, (laughs) you know, you're on his task force. And I say that because, you know, I've seen like, um, late seventies, uh, espionage television shows and stuff. And you just get people just like, you realize they must have called nine places before they finally got to where your main character is, because what other choice do they have? It's 1978 or 1988 or whatever. Right. Anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I, I have been assuming for 20 years or more that it was just commissioner's house, but you're probably right. He just says mayor's house. Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) it happens right yeah you know so the commissioner is not giving gordon uh extra personnel to track down the vigilante because the commissioner likes having less crime even if the reason is because the vigilante's in town batman makes note of gordon's name before tossing a smoke bomb into the house a real bomb follows blowing a hole in the side of the house where batman proclaims that no one is safe love it love it lots (laughs) Yeah, and the commissioner changes his mind real quick and demands Gordon take down the vigilante. So Gordon sets up all of these traps trying to catch him, and Bruce can spot them a mile away and avoid them. But he keeps on with his mission. So Gordon approaches assistant DA Harvey Dent and probes to find out if he's Batman. But of course, he's got an alibi for each incident, although... His alibi is his wife, so I'm not really sure that's airtight, but Gordon seemed to think. He's also not the greatest, like, he's not the best suspect. And I think Gordon's doing the cop thing where he's like, look, we'd press him if it were worth it, but I just don't think it's worth it, you know? Right. Um, Also, uh, close readers at home might note that D.A. Harvey Dent would one day become known as Two-Face. I was wondering about that because when I first saw his name, I was I thought that like my brain wanted to associate that name with the bad guy. And so I was surprised to find out that this was the assistant DA who was working to take down criminals. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's 100% Two-Face's, you know, backstory is that he gets hurt 
by an attempted murder by, you know, the the mob bosses that he's trying to take down and and goes a little sideways because of it. Okay. The other thing that kind of threw me out of the scene was Batman's hiding behind Harvey Dent's desk while Gordon is there. Yeah. This is never brought up again, at well, least in these, in these four issues. Well, yes, it is a little bit because later when Gordon is livid that Dent let a major drug dealer out on bail and Dent's just grinning like an idiot, the next time we see that major drug dealer is Batman basically terrifying him into turning state's evidence. So they're colluding. Dent and Batman are working together. I think that was a little bit too subtle for me. Okay. I feel like the the drug dealer thing brings it home. But again, I had a lot of extra textual knowledge that I could bring to this thing even 20, 25 years ago. Well, and you've read it more than I have. Oh, so many times. (laughs) (laughs) So after Gordon leaves Harvey Dent's office, Detective Essen tosses out Bruce Wayne's name as a possible suspect because of his wealth and the possible motive of the death of his parents. A truck loses control and is about to run over a woman in the street. Gordon can't get to the wheel in time, but Batman appears and saves her. Cops arrive and assume Batman attacked, shooting him in the leg as he flees. Gordon saw him save the woman and tries to stop the assault, but he's too late and Brandon blows up the building Batman was seen running into. And there we end issue two, which was a pretty spectacular ending to an issue, I have to say. if I, I feel like if, if that had been me reading... As these came out and I had to wait an entire month, I would have been very frustrated. Oh, for real? I mean, yeah, totally. Um, uh, not to mention that if I weren't buying a book that was called Batman, I would be like, well, does he make it? Right. You know, like- <laughs> well, but you and honestly, I still do that, you know, because I guess in the shows that I like, I mean, being such a big Joss Whedon fan, you kind of learn that nobody's really safe, even the main character. <laughs> Uh, that's fa- that's fair. I mean, that's fair to a point, but I mean, I, I don't think that yeah. was a thing yet in the '80s. But you know, uh, and even, even if he's going to make it, he may be severely injured. Also, Batman Year One uh, insinuates that there may be other years afterwards. That's true, but you don't think about that in the moment when you're no, watching no, no, no. it be blown up. I, I agree. I agree with you. It just, yeah, no, it's a great ending. And and one thing again, kind of talking about that like masterful use of. Uh, of the space that Miller has, we got Brandon named a whole issue pre or nearly a whole issue previously. And we know he's dangerous because Gordon is like, Oh hell no. I got to stop that guy. You right. know? Um, and, and you even get, you even get Selena at one point when she's, I think it's the next issue when Holly's like stuff's blowing up over there. And she goes, Brandon must've cornered a jaywalker. Like these, these two or three lines tell you how dangerous this guy is. And then he's blowing up a building and you're like, our, our hero is in trouble. Like, (laughs) right. Uh, Speaking of issue three, the synopsis of issue three is pretty short because the whole thing is basically this SWAT team's siege of this building, trying to either, uh, apprehend or kill, more likely kill Batman. And they have dropped, what, two or three bombs on the building at this point and then sent in the the uh, the SWAT team. While the bombs are dropping, uh, the fire catches on the thermite in Batman's belt, so he loses his utility belt and is now down to a very tiny number of tools and weapons. 
Nevertheless, it's a few dozen SWAT cops in a bombed out building versus Batman, and they don't stand a chance. Like He just picks them off one by one, picks up the radio and says to Brandon something like, you need to get your men out of here. I can't guarantee their safety. And he's just incredibly badass throughout this entire thing, while also legitimately being in peril. Like, he, we, the reader, know he's down. You know, he's got at least a, one bullet in him and he has no weapons and all that stuff. But these guys are just like, he's so strong and he keeps appearing and beating us up, you know. Um, <laughs> um, you also get him catching a bullet defending one of Selena Kyle's cats because apparently there's a Catwoman subplot. I don't know why. I don't know why. Why that's in here. It's. Did you have any feelings about the Catwoman subplot as it as it unfolded? I assumed it was setting up something that would come in a later story. Nope. Is what I assumed. <laughs> yeah, I think Miller assumed that too because why else would you waste your precious real estate? But it's really. I don't know. I don't know. That's my biggest mystery for Batman Year One is why we had this Catwoman subplot. I mean, she doesn't do anything other than, I mean, she tries to um, fight him to protect Holly. And I guess that was issue two, maybe issue issue one. one. That was issue one. one. Yeah. And then she's just kind of randomly in the background watching this building burn. Right. And she shows up later. She shows up later and screws up an investigation, but it's still like, geez, why? I mean, I like Catwoman. I love Catwoman's character. Michelle Pfeiffer was great. This version of Catwoman is not so great because, again, Frank Miller problems. But it's still, it's like, why Why did we do this? I don't know. At any rate, we are introduced to the last of Batman's weapons, which basically amount to a lockpick, excuse me, a lockpick, three knockout darts, and a transmitter that attracts bats. So he's basically holding off these cops while the sun threatens to rise and he's waiting for these bats to show up. Uh, He pulls it off, he holds it together, and a cloud of bats just envelops, (laughs) just envelops this building and the crowd and the helicopter, and he is able to escape. But in the process, Gordon is a little conflicted. He's like, but he saved the cat and he saved that old woman and he didn't kill any of these cops that he could have killed. Also, Bruce Wayne covers his tracks. Uh, he's skiing, apparently, to cover and, and broke both arms and a leg to cover up the bullet wounds. Selena begins to make her questionable costuming and life decisions as she becomes Catwoman. And Gordon, unfortunately, draws closer to his beautiful colleague, Sarah Essen. I was so disappointed in that. So disappointed. Gordon was supposed to be my good guy here. And he's got a pregnant wife. Oh, I know. No, I know. I mean, I think we're doing a very specific thing. If you're familiar with noir fiction at all, nobody is the good guy. You know. Now here, Batman has to be the good guy. But he also basically avoids personal entanglements at this point in his career. So that's easy. Other than the lying. You know. But yeah, Gordon compromising himself a little bit. It's tough to watch. Or read. Both. I mean, yeah. I felt like I was watching something, you know, while while reading this, just because the the pictures, the artwork was so vivid, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was it was well done. The emotion, even though it it didn't take very many pages, mm-hmm. you could feel the attractive, you know, the attraction building. You could feel the tension that they had between each other, and the emotions when they realized that they couldn't continue. Yes. You know, it was kind of sad, even though I was kind of angry with, with Detective Gordon there, but 
it is it, what it is. Yeah, no, that's the it's so human, right? Like they he fights with Barbara because they have a kid coming and he works all the time in this terrible city and so Sarah is there and she understands cop stuff and she's beautiful and you know, it's just, she's so different than Barbara and she's easy. Not, not in a sexual mores way, but in a, it's a lot easier than his married life. Right. Right. It's a, it, yeah. So anyway, um, by issue four, however, Gordon and Essen realize things aren't going to work mainly because Jim actually loves his wife and she's pregnant. Uh, Essen applies for a transfer. Gordon continues his work as a hero cop, by apprehending a dra- a major drug kingpin, Skeevers, great name. Great um, name. Dent lets Skeevers out on bail. Gordon is angry. This is what I was talking about before, where, uh, you know, he's mad and Dent just all, all smiles like, want to borrow my umbrella? I mean, you know, it's just not, they're not on the same page. And it's because Batman is sneaking in to terrify Skeevers into turning state's evidence on Flass. Commissioner Loeb tries to slow Gordon down by blackmailing him over his affair with Essen. Meanwhile, Gordon and his wife call on Bruce Wayne in order to question him about being Batman. This is the place where the Bruce Wayne act is kind of hardest to watch. You know, where he's pretending to be a drunken lout with this girl who is, Mm -hmm. you know, supermodel girl who, what what does he say? Something like, uh, doesn't speak any language he knows. Right. You know, and she's just got his got her tongue in his ear the whole time he's trying to talk to uh, Jim and Barbara. It's just, yeah, it's like, oh, you're such a douche, apparently, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why did Gordon bring Barbara with him? Okay, they do actually address that in the animated movie. I don't, the only reason I can say in the comic book is so they can have the conversation afterwards that they have. I don't know in the book why. Okay. Um, I, again, he only had so many pages. I think you just miss some of that fine tuning. You know what I mean? They they bundle it up with the doctor's visit in the animated movie so that, you know, Bruce Wayne's representative says he's available now. Okay, well, we'll go right now, you know, and they're just getting done at the at the OB. Okay. So, I mean, you know, again, he, only so many pages. It's also interesting that I probably read this thing a hundred times before I went, Wait a minute. Why the hell did he take his wife on this cop business? So, <laughs> you know, you're just, you're going, you're doing the thing. Um, right. So let's see. Uh, as Gordon ponders Bruce's possible desire to keep secrets, right in Wayne Manor's driveway, he decides to come clean with Barbara about his affair. Shortly after this, Skeevers is poisoned while in custody and narrowly survives. Baby James is born. Some cat burglaries happen because apparently Catwoman's in the story. I don't know. Uh, I don't, (laughs) um, Batman nearly gets somewhere in an investigation of the Roman Falcone, but Catwoman screws that up while pondering what the Roman could be up to. Bruce decides to go crime fighting, but assures Alfred he'd never wear the Batman outfit during the day. This is also a reference to Batman 66 because he went out and well, and comics before crisis where he went out in the day a lot like during the 50s batman was a duly deputized officer of the law you know because we had to be a good example for the kids that's interesting yeah 75 years it's been weird you know um (laughs) at any rate so gordon is called out on a penny any case realizes it's at the last possible minute realizes it's a ploy to separate him from barbara Batman has also realized that that this is what Falcone was up to and has raced to help Gordon. 
The mobsters escape with the kid, but after Gordon shoots two of them, so badass. <laughs> but then he also accidentally shoots a thinly disguised Batman and steals his motorcycle to chase after them. Whoops. Right. I mean, it's understandable. He's just in a motorcycle helmet and a jacket. And Gordon is hopped up on adrenaline, and then all of a sudden there's a motorcycle speeding past him. I'm going to shoot that guy, too. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, these guys are trying to take my kid, so yeah, I'm going to shoot anybody that moves. Batman recovers. He's armored. He assures Barbara that he won't let her son die, steals a bicycle, and also joins the pursuit. Gordon runs the car off the road on a bridge. The Roman's nephew, holding his baby, attacks Gordon in the struggle They all three fall off the side of the bridge. The baby first, and then Gordon following. But we see that Batman has dove from higher and and gets his hands on the kid. I really like that there are three panels of Barbara pulling up in a cab, running to the edge of the bridge with silence. And it's not until she gets to the edge of the bridge that the baby crying sound effect comes through. Like That's a lot of tension. Like, did it work out? I mean, because you're right, Batman's going to be okay. Jim Gordon probably going to be okay. How's Baby James? You know, he's. A I was concerned guy. about Baby James. Right. If anybody was going to go down in that, he's the guy. Anyway, now the unmasked Bruce Wayne or Batman, but unmasked, hands the baby back to Gordon, who says, "I'm basically blind with my without my glasses." And when he hears Siren says, "You'd better go," a new alliance I feel has been forged. Then you get just a bunch of cleanup. Flash flips on Commissioner Loeb hard. Loeb's never going to go to jail, but he does resign. Gordon's worried about the incoming commissioner being worse, but he is promoted to captain. He and Barbara are seeing a marriage counselor, and it seems to be helping. Unfortunately, some lunatic is threatening to poison the Gotham Reservoir. Calls himself the Joker. But Gordon's not worried. He's meeting a friend he thinks he can help. That's a reference to the first Joker story, actually. It's called The Case of the Criminal Syndicate. And that was the Joker's first story was he was poisoning the Gotham Reservoir. I really, I like this ending because it wraps everything in the story up so neatly, but gives Mm -hmm. you potential to do more. And I feel like they probably could have done more and done it really well, even though apparently they kind of (laughs) didn't, at least not with this, you know, not with Frank Miller. Yes and no. Crisis was weird and you don't care. But so yes and no is the best answer I can give. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, we have talked a lot about Batman, you know. Yes. Yes. What else do we need to talk about uh, with Batman Year One? Uh, Well, if you don't have anything else specifically, I mean, I can say this is this is one of those seminal works, right? Like uh, it's had a huge impact on Batman as a character for decades Honestly, it kind of changed things for the super superhero industry as a whole, along with a couple of other books. And it, re- speaking for myself, huge impact on my own writing style. And so even though Frank Miller is now uh, like a dotty old misogynist racist, and believe it or not, Batman Year One is no longer my favorite Batman origin, everything with Batman in it is in some way a continuation or a response to Batman Year One. That is bar none. Well, that that's good because I really did like the story a lot. I I was impressed by how much story, world building, and character development you got out of a comic book. Yeah, you know, for somebody who's never read a comic book, you just kind of always assume it's a bunch of pictures with a little bit of words. 
<laughs> and that's kind of what it is, but it's really not because, oh my gosh, I mean, this was dense. Yeah. I mean, we just, it, it took us, what, 40 minutes to just go through these four issues? To hit the highlights, right? right. Like not, not to dig into, well, we dug into a few of the finer points, but I mean, we, people, if you've never read this thing, we hit the highlights, you know. We, we did. Um, and if anybody wants to read it, I will link to uh, the online version in the show notes and you can go go read it. And I do recommend it. It was fantastic. I think this was perfect for my first my first comic book, I think. All right. Excellent. So I, you know, and if I wanted to read more Batman is, you've kind of addressed this already, but is there really a particular Batman story that I should read next? That you should read next. Okay, if we were going to really talk about it, I would probably suggest my current favorite Batman origin. Uh, it's called Zero Year. It was by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. I think it's called, I think it's Capullo. I, I'm not sure how to say his name. C-A-P-U-L-L-O. I ne- That's the thing about comic books. I never get to hear how anybody's name is said, you know? <laughs> right, right. Every time, when all you do is read, you just have to figure out how to say it. And, and... So I can also, I can suggest some other things. If you really like this gritty urban Batman, they did a story called No Man's Land that ran through six or seven different Bat titles for a solid year where Gotham was broken by an earthquake and the United States government says, you know, we're not going to fix it and just declares it No Man's Land, but Batman won't abandon it. So it's kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, um, within the, within just the Gotham city, city limits, I guess, uh, that's great stuff. I would highly recommend that if you like this. But I like su- I like Batman the superhero more these days. And Zero Year does an amazing job of setting him up as more of a superhero and less the urban vigilante. I am also now going to list a whole slew of books that if anybody really wants to dive into Batman is literally the best Batman has ever been. Go for it. It's everything that Grant Morrison wrote. He's one of my favorite writers for comics, for anything really, but especially superhero comics. It starts in Batman and Son. Then you read The Black Glove. Then you re- read Batman Rest in Peace. Then you read several volumes of Batman and Robin. Then The Return of Bruce Wayne. Two volumes of Batman Incorporated. And finish it up with Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes. It sounds like a lot because it is. <laughs> but it is literally one story about Batman being the best that Batman has ever been. I think I would like that better. One of my hesitations with reading comics is that I'm afraid of getting confused and constantly having things changed, having things retconned. Because, I mean, you Captain America has been around since the golden age of comics. He's not the same character today as he was back then. You know, you yeah. have to kind of restart the story and restart the cycle. And so it's not a complete story. It's several different takes. And I like being able to sit down and read something from beginning to end. And so comics really have, they scare me. Comics are not going to do that for you very often. Yeah, it's true. Other, other comic books are like other type, other genres are, but superhero comics are sort of built on the idea of publishing forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I am familiar with the the new Buffy comics. So, you know, season eight, season nine, I think we're up to season 11 now. But those, to me, are television series told in comic book form. And I like that because I understand where it started. I understand where it's going. And it doesn't confuse me. 
Mm -hmm. I think like regular comic book stories can. And so it's helpful to have a list like this where you can say, okay, read this set because this is a single story, you know, and then you can turn around and say, okay, but now that you're done with that, here's another story that's different, but the Mm -hmm. character is also Batman. Well, and these all fit together. These are like individual stories that also tell a much bigger, like mega story, you know, where Batman is the best he's ever been. And then he gets torn down and he still comes back and then he sort of dies and Dick Grayson takes over as Batman with Bruce Wayne's son as his Robin and they're awesome. I mean, so it's like, <laughs> it's a series of stories that fit together into one bigger story, you know? Right, but, so they're, but, they're all kind of same universe though, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Written by the same guy, like came out one after the other every month for however long it was. It was a long time. <laughs> So you enjoyed this? I did not twist your arm into Batman Year One and you regret inviting me on your show? Oh, not at all. I really did enjoy it. I think it was, I think you did good picking my first comic. Excellent. And I will definitely be coming back to ask you for your opinions in the future. All right. Everybody else can do that too. I really like it. I really like finding the superhero comic that people don't know that they want to read. So anyone listening to the show, I'm I'm on Twitter as, uh, Oh, we're getting to this. But anyway, at Joshua Unruh, just ask me what, what you want to read, and I'll ask you, or say, I want to read superhero comics, Josh, and I'll ask you a few questions to try and narrow it down, which I feel like I did for you, Mandy. Um, oh, you did. You did. You asked <laughs> a lot of questions. It was great. Well, I'll ask, I, here's the promise I'll make to your listeners. I'll ask you fewer l- questions than I did Mandy, because she was prepping for a show. I just want you to have a good time. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So we will be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Indiana Jones' first outing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Until then, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at Mandy K. You can email me at Mandy K at popculturallydeprived.com, or you can comment on this post on popculturallydeprived.com. You can also find Joshua on Twitter at Joshua Unruh. And until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And yes, Father, I shall become a bat. (laughs) I like that.